The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. My, my solution was to talk to the senior officials, the senior attorneys on the National Security Council and see if we could right the ship. My, my efforts were geared towards letting John Eisenberg know that this was a huge risk to both our national security and to our policy and frankly to the president, uh, whether he, he knew it or not, that he was potentially doing something criminal, it wasn't clear to me, but I thought that could be something criminal in, in his machinations and that these attorneys whose job it was to provide this kind of check could draw us back from the edge. That's not the way history unfolded. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, August 3rd, 2021. Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman is the Pritzker Military Fellow at the Lawfare Institute, a former NSC staffer, and of course an impeachment witness in the first impeachment of Donald J. Trump. He is also the author of the new book out today, Here, Right Matters, An American Story. He joined me in the Virtual Jungle studio to talk about the book, the ground it covers from his immigration as a small child to his departure from the army, the decision he made to report what he heard Donald Trump say to President Zelensky of Ukraine, and the fallout, positive and negative. We covered a lot of ground. Brooklyn in the 1980s, a military career, and what it does for you when you're a late bloomer, and all kinds of other things. It's the Lawfare Podcast, August 3rd, Alex Vindman on Here, Right Matters. So, Alex, I assume you did this whole testifying thing, resigning from the military, getting yourself attacked by the former president, all so that you could write a book, right? I actually did it because I am a glutton for punishment, and I figured life was too easy just serving my country in the military quietly in that of the limelight. But... uh no, I, uh, I had no thoughts of anything to do with a book uh, for a long, long time. It just seemed like an odd thing to do. But it, as we get into it, I'll explain, I guess, why I did it. Yeah, so, so actually, let's start there. When and why did you decide to write up this set of experiences as a book? Yeah, well, it's interesting. Uh, I, I should start by saying that as soon as I left the White House, there were like 
these ridiculous offers to sign a book contract, you know, crazy numbers, million dollar book deals and all that kind of stuff. And to my wife's chagrin, I basically set all that aside. I pointed out that I'm in the military. I haven't kind of quite figured out if my military career is over with. And um, I set the whole kind of notion aside. And uh, as I came around to both the conclusion of my military career and, and started thinking about what I wanted to do afterwards, had the time to reflect after leaving the White House and read through hundreds and actually thousands of letters of, of support, uh, I thought one thing that I can do uh, is to, in my own words, explain what happened with regards to the first impeachment of Donald Trump, the Ukraine scandal, and who I was and why I took the actions I did. So in a lot of ways, this was just a the, an ability to respond to many people, mainly supporters, but even critics, explaining you know, why I did what I did, what was at stake. In my mind, that included the very kind of bedrock of our democracy and a fair election. And all that came together into the, to this book that is much, much bigger than just a, a story about a phone call. It's about my immigrant background. It's about my decades of military service. There's some cool kind of war stories. All of that is in there and, and how it contributed to my actions. So the book, as you say, covers a lot more ground than simply what happened in that phone call of, I guess, July 2019. It starts with the phone call, but then it tracks back to your family history in Ukraine, including your father's growing up during the war. So why did you go back that far? And what's the relationship between the backstory you tell and the story in the introduction and that forms the sort of dramatic core of the book? Right. So I, I believe that uh, we're kind of the sum total of all of our experiences, especially in the most challenging moments. We draw on everything that we learned, both kind of in terms of uh, our childhood, our upbringing, even a deeper history of our family roots. Certainly my decades of military service were all significant factors in, in the, both of the decisions I made and how I made them. So, you know, my, my belief is I did the right thing in the right way. And that was the sum total of all of my uh, experiences to that point. And I think the backstory is in certain ways, a, a quintessential story of, you know, family coming from a, from a, a foreign place. We came here as refugees, establishing ourselves through hard work. One of the kind of the foundational values of uh, of America, achieving some some gains, some setbacks and losses, learning from the good, the bad, you know, the missteps, the lack of discipline, and then achieving something, and then frankly starting uh, back over. And that's a story that is is part of my family background, my family lore. But it's a story that I think everybody could share. Their life is not just kind of a a, a continuous series of steps forward, uh, continuous progress. There are setbacks along the way and over, overcoming those setbacks, kind of living with the decisions that you make, the good, the bad, uh, is an important story to tell. And I thought 
it, it was required in this case to explain you know, why I did what I did. So one of the things that I learned from this book was a little bit of the backstory of your comments, your famous comment to your father during your hearing, Here, Right Matters, which is, of course, the title of the book. I did not know this before, but your father was a Trump supporter and was not at all convinced that testifying, much less testifying about what you regarded as the impropriety of the phone call with Zelensky was a good idea or the right thing to do. So tell me about this story from your father's point of view. How did he experience it? Yeah. Now, some of that story has been told, I guess, in my testimony. I addressed them directly. But what I what I get into in in the book is really the backstory. And in certain regards, probably not in sufficient detail. There is zero doubt that my dad was channeling his 47 years as a Soviet citizen and his deep, deep concern for me personally and the consequences of me challenging the president of the United States, an officer with the president of the United States in my direct chain of command at odds. And they're at odds because I fell on the side of uh, the Constitution, in, in my view, and the president fell on the side of the corruption. So he was channeling that, that thinking on risk. In addition to channeling his concerns for my personal safety, he was also not fully aware of the corruption of the Trump administration. And there was a, an appeal for kind of a strong man, uh, somebody that's, that is not part of the swamp as what he thought in, or what he had in his mind, somebody that's not part of the political establishment being able to get some, some things done. So in channeling that perspective, he was also very similar to thousands and thousands of refugees, immigrants, especially from the communist world that have a visceral reaction to anything on the left. And they hew very closely to the right, to conservatism, and even a uh, unhealthy kind of conservatism uh, as an absolute rejection of, of communism. And I've had this conversation with him multiple times, but he's also subject to a kind of propaganda. He was subject to the kind of propaganda that we see on Fox News. But another kind of propaganda that goes through the airwaves that cater to Russian speakers uh, that are owned and operated by uh, interests that this is, you know, kind of there's a well, well-established research on this, but that cater to a much more favorable impression of, of Russia than is warranted. And I think all these things were kind of counseling him to get me to march into the president's office and to somehow say, Mr. President, I was wrong. How do we make this right? So I, I take it part of the process for you of going through this was part of it was about addressing Congress and answering people's questions as they considered the impeachment of the president. But part of it was also addressing your father. With regards to the book, if I understand you correctly? No, no. I mean, the, the process actually of becoming a public person and yeah. making these factual claims that you made. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I guess taking a small credit, uh, one of my successes was uh, getting my dad to see the light 
about Donald Trump through my own experiences, because my, my dad trusts me implicitly. He knows that I'm honorable and wouldn't lie. And uh, through that contrast to what the president was accusing me of and his proxies, vile character assassinations, I, I uh, convinced him that he was wrong, but he had to live that experience. And that's, that's not a, you know, that's obviously not a formula for success in deprogramming the kind of rabid following of Donald Trump that has bought into the lies and is now a, a partisan in uh, their rejection of kind of basic democratic values as well as big D and small D democracy. So the story that you tell in this begins, I mean, for you anyway, in leaving Ukraine as a very small child and kind of growing up in in Brooklyn. And it's a a Brooklyn that that I remember very well from my own childhood, but is I, I think pretty far removed from well, it's pretty far removed from a lot of what people think of as Brooklyn now, which is, you know, all very hipster and but it's also, you know, the people who kind of think of you as this sort of elite, you know, coastal elites attacking the president. You grew up in kind of immigrant Brighton Beach and then Borough Park. Tell us a little about that, like what those communities were like when you were growing up. Sure. First, let me start by saying it is eerie and it will remain eerie that people will know all this about my background. I come from a kind of a life where I'm out of the limelight, uh, I'm out of the public eye, and you know, information about me is is something to be protected and guarded and metered out, you know, potentially in exchange for you know information about other diplomats. So it's it's interesting to hear people kind of talk to me about my background. Well, you did just write a book about it. I know. I should have expected that. I know. It's one of those things that like, you know, maybe I should have thought there was a little more. It's the release date's tomorrow. Maybe I could still pull the plug. I don't know. <laughs> but um, but you know, it's interesting. When I was growing up, this is probably a bad statistic, but, you know, Bedford-Stuyvesant, East Brooklyn, was like the murder capital of the world. You know, you wouldn't go, you wouldn't go to like, you know, neighborhoods in Harlem. They were like desolate wastelands with ruined buildings and stuff like that. Uh, same thing with the Bronx. And the city has, you know, had a kind of a renaissance and a revival over the course of the subsequent decades. But in 1979, 1980, it was nothing like that. And I don't want to, you know, overstate, you know, that my background is kind of similar to some of these uh, dramatized stories about the inner city <laughs> growing up in, in Compton or something like that. But it was probably much, much closer to something like that than it is to what the perceptions are of Brooklyn and New York City today. It was a, a rough and tumble kind of tough inner city uh, upbringing. And I, you know, I talk about some of this in the book about like, learning to navigate, you know, the streets in New York, uh, getting from point A to point B, navigate kind of the, the the relationships that you need to in order to not constantly get into fights, which I got into plenty of fights when I was growing up. But all that uh, is very, very different than the kind of the image of, of New York now. And I think, you know, I, I, it probably resonates with, with folks that grew up in cities, folks from, you know, your and my generation, roughly, uh, that doesn't, maybe resonate quite as well with kind of the, the 
modern suburban views of both coastal elites and, and cities and um, you know what, I, what I'm very, very fortunate to be able to provide, provide for my daughter. Right. So you were, like me, a kind of desultory student. And there's a, a, a funny account in the book of your family kind of clucking at other kids in the, in the family don't turn out like the Vindman boys, meaning study hard and, you know, do your homework. The cautionary tale. We were yes, the exactly. Tale. What turned it around for you? You know, you describe yourself as a late bloomer. What was the sort of ray of sunshine that, that turned things around? There's no simple kind of pinning down one particular moment. Uh, there were, were a series of kind of failures and reflective moments. And then there was the whole, you know, the fact that I, jo- I wanted to join the military that was a kind of a key turning point in which I, you know, set out a different course for myself. But I think it was a combination of different events, leaving American University as either academically suspended or dismissed. I never, frankly, have had good clarity on that one. And then taking a semester off, collecting myself, having my family kind of, you know, give me a firm talking to about what prospects would remain for me if I continued to, to be like this some seasoning, some experience, some life experience, some uh, discipline, just the late bloomer component is interesting because there's certainly a lack of maturity, but there was also, you know, a concrete kind of physiological change that occurs, you know, as you, as you progress in age and you start to settle down and you work out, you figure out ways to cope with your excess energies and stuff like that. All of that plus military service helped me kind of get on the right track and one of the things I enjoy most about talking to folks, especially younger students, is the fact that some folks achieve success and discipline early and they're able to stay focused. Other folks do not and they need, they set themselves up for a much, much more difficult road. And that was the case for me. But they could still kind of break through and achieve the outcomes that they want, which I did to a large extent and I'll continue to do moving forward. But it's not a smooth road. It's a bumpy road along the way. And I enjoy kind of telling people that there are ways to overcome challenges. So skipping ahead, you had until the day you listened to that phone call, both an exemplary military career and the military served you very well. I mean, you made your whole career of, what was it? 20 years in the military. The last section of the book contains a lot of recriminations toward the army for the way it handled your situation and has a quite different tone toward the military than the first sort of two thirds of the book. So walk me through that change a little bit. The military was kind of good enough to you for long enough that you felt very betrayed by the end game. So, so before we go to the, the phone call and the aftermath of the phone call, just talk us through the experience that you had in the military and the expectations of how that that created for how they would take care of you. Sure. 
So first, let me start by saying you know, I, I cherish my time. I still cherish my time in the military. I, I don't think I would have done anything different with regard to my, my military career. It just afforded an enormous amount of opportunity. And I attempt to separate my views uh, on the institutions, the awesome institutions that have given me so much uh, within the Army, the, the Department of Defense, and understandably flawed individuals that run those institutions. And what I think I've concluded is that much like the corruption of other departments and agencies in government and our kind of in, in the, the tapestry of of American society by internal and external forces, the military was corrupted in the same way. And that is probably not something that's really well understood. The military still has probably about the, the highest approval rating of any kind of branch of government, and it, it deserves it. The composition of the military are extremely honorable, wonderful uh, human beings that basically choose a life of service over kind of self-service. And my criticism or my, you know, harsh judgment falls squarely on the shoulders of the leaders that are supposed to lead the institutions and exemplify their values because they demand those values of subordinates. But in my case, I think they fell short. And where they fell short is, you know, a, a lieutenant colonel serving in the White House has his hands tied. There is no ability to kind of engage with the press, defend yourself, and the institution has an obligation to to defend the officer. Uh, we've seen some examples of uh, senior military officers that have all the trappings of power and position, and they have their personal security details, they have their PAO shops, and they're able to kind of defend themselves or in certain regards, organize campaigns to defend themselves. I didn't have any of that. And I was left out by myself. And and after 20 years of service, my, my wife and daughter moving me, with me everywhere, uh, I had thought that there would be some effort to, to protect me. And there wasn't. I was in a way left out on the battlefield by myself. What would that have looked like? I mean, the president is, after all, the commander in chief. Yeah. And Imagine that the military and the army had had lived up to your expectations. How would it have looked different in practice from what yeah. happened? So uh, how would it have looked different in terms of consequences? And I'm going to work, work my way backward here. We may not have had the military paraded out in the summer of 2020, uh, where the, the secretary of defense and the chairman of the Joint Chiefs were paraded out as potential you know, supporters of uh, suppression of peaceful protests because the military and the army and the Department of Defense would have made their, their, their position known in that they've upheld the values of the institution. Now, it could have been other people, in, uh, obviously, because there's almost certainly the president would have fired whoever kind of pushed back on him, but still the organization would have st stayed true to its values. If I were in the same position, I thought that there would be a way to defend the soldier without necessarily directly picking a fight. This Alex Vindman has served honorably for for decades. He's in the in the position on the, uh, on the National Security Council because of his uh, uh, capabilities or something of that nature, without necessarily picking a fight. 
conversely, I do have to say, I, I was uh, operating at the senior levels of government, certainly both at the Pentagon and on the National Security Council. And I understand the desire to stay apolitical, and I understand the desire to protect the institution for these senior leaders. What I don't have clarity on in my own mind was, were these leaders in leaving me out there by myself, protecting the institution, or were they protecting themselves? Or did they not quite understand the difference? Or did they not quite understand the difference? Leonig's book on um, I Alone, that's out right now, it talks about this kind of hubris that affects senior policy makers that they're the ones that will hold the line. They're the dam against more abuses. They're the guardrail. Uh, when in fact, our institutions are deep with professionalism, deep with expertise, and not not a single one of these, no matter how capable these leaders is as an I alone. We train in the military to do something called fallout drills. One man out. The leader goes down, somebody else steps up to take take charge. And there's a hubris that that kind of befalls senior leaders that they think that they're the only ones that can do that, uh, fill that role. And I think that that's a part of the failing. And I think it also points to maybe a deeper issue with, an, again, an institution that I honor and, and love uh, that uh, resulted in, in decades of war commitments that, that senior leaders made or counsel that they provided that did not achieve the military objectives or the political objectives that the country laid out. And I think this is my, my experience is a symptom of something bigger. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Sharon, and here's where it gets interesting. Raise your hand if you want salon perfect nails for just $2 a manicure. Yeah, me too. With the Alvin June Manny system, you can say goodbye to expensive services that take hours and hours and love your nails more than ever. I would know I've been doing it for years. Get 20% off your first Manny system with code PERFECTMANNY20 at alvinjune.com slash PERFECTMANNY20. That's PERFECTMANNY20 at alvinjune.com slash PERFECTMANNY20. Hey, Lawfare listeners, Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me. 
and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information. Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I wanna tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there and these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a, a solution to this problem. And I wanna stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. All right, so let's talk about the phone call. You open with the phone call, and with your comment to your twin brother moments after the phone call that if this gets out, the president will be impeached. You sort of had this instinct in listening to this that the political system would respond exceptionally badly to or react very badly to this. What was it specifically about the call that bothered you that much? I recognized immediately that the president was attacking the very foundation of our democracy elections, free and fair elections, and that 200 plus years of history 
had created antibodies to this and that there would be a reaction. And, you know, without, you know, kind of, I didn't say the president would be impeached and removed. The president, I, it was a visceral reaction. It was not like uh, a whimsical comment. It was just an, a, a, a cool, calm assessment of the gravity of the moment without, frankly, making the connection that it wouldn't necessarily become public. It was a if then statement. If the president's actions became public, he would be impeached. And uh, I, I knew immediately that, you know, my role would be to play this, this tiny role in terms of providing, you know, some sort of check on it. And my check, my, my solution was to talk to the senior officials, the senior attorneys on the National Security Council and see if we could write the ship. My, my efforts were geared towards letting John Eisenberg know that this was a huge risk to both our national security and to our policy, and frankly, to the president, uh, whether he, he knew it or not, that he was potentially doing something criminal, it wasn't clear to me, but I thought that could be something criminal in, in his machinations, and that these attorneys whose job it was to provide this kind of check could draw us back from the edge. That's not the way history unfolded. Yeah, so let's talk about the role of the attorneys, because uh... John Eisenberg, less so, but Michael Ellis, his deputy, subsequently, of course, became a discussion matter for other reasons because of Trump's attempt to install him as as general counsel at NSA. How do you understand the role of the attorneys? You know, you came to them and described what happened, and they did well, at one level, very little, and another level, quite a lot with the information. So give, give me a sense of how sure. you assess their roles. Sure. So first of all, let me tell you that I had probably uh, just relatively recently before that finished reading this book by a, a good friend of mine, John Gans, called White House Warriors. And I think in terms of, I, I read quite a bit. My undergrad degree was in history. I'm a bit of a history buff. I understood what the roles of the attorneys were. Historically, prior to the 80s, there were no attorneys on the NSC staff. They emerged as a result of a Tower Commission report into the Iran-Contra scandal. And they were there specifically as a check on a national security apparatus that you know could stray into illegal, immoral, or unethical areas. So they, they came into force sometime in the in the late 80s, early 90s, I don't know, know exactly the date. And their role was to take a look at every activity, communication up, meaning from the director level or from outside the director up to the national security advisor or to the president and out communications that were going to the departments and agencies and provide that kind of check. Having un this understanding, that is exactly why I focused my, my efforts on, on taking my concerns to the, to the attorneys. Now, if I were still in, for instance, the, the Department of Defense, I would have recourse to take my concerns either through the, directly through the chain of command or through the inspector general's office. There was, was no such recourse. If I wanted to stay within, within proper channels, not be a leaker, my recourse was simple, notify the attorneys. All right. So you notified the attorneys and they seem to have kind of verified with you that you didn't know there was a criminal violation and then stored the 
transcript such as it was on a secure server and then done nothing else. Is that a fair summary? That is correct. I think the answer, the, the easiest way to describe it is they basically took no action uh, initially. And when they did take action, they did it for damage control and not to protect the institution, uh, not to live up to an oath to the, the Constitution of the United States, but to serve as the president's personal attorneys. And this is a major kind of continuous theme amongst the folks that President Trump put into power. They served as his personal staff as opposed to living up to their obligations to the Constitution. So the reason I could say this pretty kind of definitively is because as far as I can tell, and I don't have absolute clarity on everything that unfolded, they were happy not to take any actions. They didn't take any actions when I made my first complaint on July 10th. They were initially not looking to take any actions after the July 25th phone call. What drove them to action was the fact that in my coordinating potentially with, with other departments and agencies or through another source, there was a whistleblower complaint initiated. And that whistleblower complaint initially started through kind of IG channels that departments and agencies have. And it quickly came to the, this is a, this is a major flaw in the system. So an IG complaint that was made to the uh, CIA then worked its way back to the National Security Council. These are political actors. I guess they, they coordinate that way instead of like a firewall between them, especially if the, the complaint is about the White House. And immediately their reaction was to, you know, basically limit access to this information. Clearly that resulted in a, a series of other more aggressive means to, to address this fundamental issue, this fundamental attack on democracy, where this whistleblower seems to have been dissatisfied with the, the response he was getting from IG channels and then put it into this, uh, this other channel uh, that ended up working its way through Congress. So... I would say at some point it would be a good idea to figure out how to keep complaints about the White House from departments and agencies from being kind of obstructed and uh, and blocked by the White House because that's not the way the system system is supposed to work. That's not the way checks and balances are conceived. In the book, you say that you don't know who the whistleblower is. But you also describe circumstances that suggest that you have a pretty good idea who it must be. Is that fair? That, that is fair. But the stakes are so high that the doubt that, uh, as to whether it is the person I think it is warrants extreme caution. And that is not my story to tell. It's the whistleblower's story to tell. No, that's about fair. Why he or she felt like they needed to do that? I just wanted to clarify the difference between the the two levels of knowledge that you're yeah, describing suspecting versus knowing. You have every reason, based on circumstances, to presume that it is a person whom you describe in the book, but. You've never asked that person, you wouldn't ask that person, and you have not, have no other authoritative means of knowing. Is that fair? That is exactly right. There's a difference between suspecting and knowing. 
And I, I don't, in fact, know with certainty who the person is. And I think the, the person, you know, that, that the whistleblower is a sophisticated actor in their own right. When they wrote up their, their whistleblower complaint, they uh, attributed it to multiple sources. So that again adds to this, you know, quite reasonable doubt as to who, you know, who's the original source, who is who is involved in kind of the, the initial complaint. But I, I could talk about my role and and what I what I contributed to this. Yeah. So I mean, as best as I can reconstruct from the book, you were part, obviously party to this conversation. You raised concerns about the conversation. You described it to two people who you said in say in the book had need to know based on that it was proper to give it to them and somewhere down that chain either directly or indirectly somebody turns around and and files that whistleblower complaint is that is that right that is correct yep i think the assessment was that you know depending on who who the actual source was for the whistleblower that this issue would not be addressed within the white house and it needed to go through uh, alternative channels and that assessment turned out to be correct because your absolutely your bringing it to john eisenberg's attention did not yeah. result in anything you know it's interesting this is a counterfactual that i fortunately don't have to deal with what would have happened if there was no whistleblower what would i have done what would you have done certainly i had every i had the the conviction to both make the initial complaint and to testify to testify without kind of minimizing what i heard or within with a careerist interest to protect myself i think that's a that's that's a good enough basis to say that i wouldn't let things stand uh but it's not I, again not something i could say with absolute certainty what i could tell you though is that we were right on the brink of the president concluding his enterprise. What's not well known is that Zelensky had scheduled an interview with CNN and literally days before is when Congress initiated their inquiries, three House committees initiated their inquiries into the, the hold on security systems. So we were just on the cusp of the president realizing his enterprise and tarnishing Joe Biden as his principal adversary. And that's probably a point in time where I would have had to either, you know, uh, stop my feet up and down or figure out another way to, uh, to really address a attack on our democratic system. And I don't know what I would have done in that case, but it, it would have the current president, President Biden would have absolutely been harmed. And who knows if he would have ended up as the Democratic nominee because the president had President Trump had realized his, his corrupt enterprise. So what do you make of the impeachment in retrospect? You look back on it, you say, well, I come out and told the truth. A bunch of other people, Masha Yovanovitch and George Kent and Fiona Hill and came out and told the truth. You know, John Bolton didn't bother. You know, the truth came out and the House Democrats impeached and Senate Republicans stopped it from going forward. 
And the president clearly didn't learn a whole lot from it, notwithstanding what Susan Collins might say. So what value did the whole thing serve? So first of all, uh, I could say on, in one sense, it was an absolute failure on checks and balances. It was, it was also a success. But let me start with the failure. What I see is a continuous logic thread between the president not being held accountable by the Senate, no censure, no negative actions whatsoever, and the president being emboldened and acting with impunity and incompetence going into the COVID pandemic. If he had, if there was any accountability whatsoever, I have every reason to believe that we would not have had 600,000 people die. If the Senate had done its job and the president were, was removed, absolutely the pandemic would have been handled differently. You mean just because Mike Pence is a more competent guy than Donald Trump? Absolutely. And he would have he would have acted in accordance with what a skilled executive, because he was an executive at the state level, would have done. And we wouldn't have had this kind of polarization and political warfare driving down everything from the very notion of a pandemic to the effective means to combat the notion through vaccines. There is blood on the, the Senate Republicans' hands. If they had done their job, 600,000 people would not have died. One. And then we wouldn't have had a catastrophic reaction with the economy and we wouldn't have had blood on the streets with regards to protests. So the Senate is responsible for that. And one means of accountability is to hold those senators and to hold those officials that were enablers to the president accountable. And that's a a mission of mine uh, going forward. But on another level, the antibodies, you know, the, the antibodies that were available based on 200 years of democracy and professional public servants doing their jobs, providing testimony, was the first crack, the first chip away at the president's claims of good governance. You could see the continuous thread that at that point, the president was impeached and it it was brought to light for large swaths of this country that the president is actually, in fact, a corrupt actor. That plus the the massive catastrophe of 600,000 dead, the president inflaming protests, all of that came together to allow President Biden to defeat President Trump. And we contributed to that. We public servants, the antibodies against corruption contributed to that. And then the, the public, the United States citizenry held the president accountable ultimately where the Senate failed. And that, I think, is, is a success. So it's it's hard to reconcile those two, but I think uh, you could have it both ways there, I think. So a supporter of the president or the former president, if, if he were listening, might say, listen to this guy, Vindman. He just described as a success that he helped people come to decide, he and other people in the deep state, helped the public decide to vote against me. That's actually what I've been saying about the deep state from the beginning, right? It's the Alex Vindmans and Pete Strucks and, you know, Andy McCabe's, and they all want the Democrats to win. What's your response to that? That on the one hand, you talk about apolitical service and you clearly mean it, 
But on the other hand, part of your definition of success here was that, you know, you guys helped Joe Biden unseat Donald Trump. Reconcile that for me. Yeah. You know, it's it's actually, for me, it's really, there's a, quite a bit of clarity around this issue. The, the judgments that come in and would label me as a deep stater are political partisan judgments. When a impartial, fair assessment would suggest that all I did was do my duty. Myself and my colleagues, all we did was do our duty. We reported what we saw. We gave factual testimony and left it to the political actors to either move forward through to impeachment or to basically uh, embolden the president by not holding him accountable uh, with regards to the Republican actors. I still consider myself a political. I think I, I write about it in the book. I, I made it a point to not come in in support of a political party, but instead challenge the president based on the actions he took. I mean, my life would be a lot easier if I were still serving in government, if I didn't say anything uh, and didn't do my job. But that's that would be sacrificing my my oath and my duty. And I think that's that's what I'm going to go with, because that's what I believe. That's what allows me to kind of live with myself and to kind of um, deal with some of the costs of, of all this. So let's talk about the costs before we wrap up. You've never thought of yourself as a controversial person. You know, your whole career has been a political military service. And all of a sudden, you are not just a household name, but a highly divisive figure with a lot of people out there who really hate you. Um, and a lot of people out there who are saying all kinds of things about you, ranging from accusations of espionage to suggestions that you're kind of a fifth columnist. What was your experience of that? You know, I've talked to a lot of people who've gone through a version of that, and they all experienced it differently. How did you experience it? It's been difficult. Uh, there's no question that I found myself at some point struggling, you know, not with things that would necessarily kind of be intuitive. Certainly there were the, the character attacks and the threats and uh, there was some concern about family safety. You know, there, at one point we, we had considered moving on to an installation. My wife felt those things more acutely. What I felt was the fact that I was giving up something that had uh, worked very hard to achieve and I was entering into uh, a brave new world where I had really, I didn't have the security and the comfort of knowing exactly where I was going, where I was going to end up. And even now, you know, trying to understand what I might want to do going forward. I've, I've been, as you know, I've been in, involved in a bunch of different things, uh, whether it's uh, non-governmental organizations looking to renew democracy, on academia, working on a doctorate in a, in a think tank. Uh, with, with you and the lawfare team, but I still, frankly, don't know what it is I want to do. What do I want? What do I want to commit myself to? And that's been that's been kind of a, a challenge. I think it's a natural challenge for a lot of people that have to think about what they want to do for a second career. All of this kind of fell on my shoulders abruptly, and um, I'm still working through it. But at the same time, 
its own reward was doing the right thing, recognizing that I lived up to my obligations. I could pinpoint exactly where I made a difference in terms of defending this country against enemies foreign and domestic and not have to wonder about, you know, what, what it is, go through the typical midlife crisis about what it is I've done over the course of a 20 year career. I mean, that's something that I could take pride in. I could take pride in the fact that my, my daughter could look at me now and when she gets older and, and recognize that her dad, you know, did the right thing and attempted to do it in the right way. And that might be, you know, the only clear kind of reward. The rest of it is falls on the on the in the checks and, and balance column or maybe on the loss side, but I could live with it. We're gonna leave it there. The book is Here Right Matters, an American story. The author is Alex Vinman. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our audio engineer this episode is Hamza Situ of Goat Rodeo. You need to do your part to promote the Lawfare Podcast, so share us on all the socials. Leave us a rating or review wherever you found us. Buy the merch at thelawfarestore.com. The Lawfare Podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com. <laughs>